Amen. Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Hebrews 10, verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those Black Pew Bibles that are in front of you and turn to page 1007 for Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, please excuse also our lights flashing. Um, hopefully, it's not giving you any problems. Uh, it'll be a little bit darker up here this morning because uh, I think something happened with our electricity and uh, it might have affected uh, different parts of our church. Um, but I think we can do it. Um, I know that many of you this morning are a little disappointed to see me up here uh, because you were hoping for Michael to come and bring you God's word from the book of Lamentations. Uh, but uh, he's unable to make it uh, due to COVID, uh, but we can keep praying for him, and you are stuck with me this morning. Well, there are a lot of reasons why people dislike Christianity, and if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, you probably can list a number of objections to Christianity, to Christians perhaps. Christians are anti-homosexual, or they're sexist, and perhaps most notably over this past week, hypocritical. Uh, this past week, a 288-page report commissioned by the Southern Baptist Convention was released that finds allegations of sexual abuse were ignored or covered up for nearly 20 years by senior members of the denomination's executive committee. And we don't know how deep the water goes. And after the shooting at Robb Elementary School, some people are accusing Christians of caring more about unborn fetuses than the lives of elementary school children. Perhaps you feel that tension with this whole Christian thing and it seems all a little bit dicey but did you know that Christians often feel the same way you do? Christians are not blind to the flaws of other Christians. In fact, we seem to have a particular knack in pointing out the flaws of other Christians. Unfortunately. 
And Christians would be much, and it would be much simpler for Christians if they just went along to get along. Uh, Christians grow tired of being ridiculed for taking a biblical stance on issues like abortion and gender roles. Christians are tired of being shamed for living outside of their culture. Christians at times want to retreat from Christianity because it feels so hard to keep fighting the good fight. And this is exactly why the book we're in this morning, Hebrews, is written. It's written to instill into the Christian faith, hope, and love. It's for the Christian, it's for the flagging Christian where the race has gone, seems to have gone very long and they're tired and their hands are hanging down and their knees are wobbly and they're ready to throw in the towel. Perhaps they're no longer trusting the Lord. Perhaps they're not continuing on in holiness. Sacrifices for Christ just seem too high There's this general malaise with Christ. And the author of Hebrews wants to get across to his hearers, to his readers, hang in there because Jesus is worth it and Jesus is better. In our passage this morning, the author of Hebrews gives actually three exhortations for the Christian, three gospel safeguards for the Christian that they might be helped to keep on keeping on to keep on trusting Jesus Christ. So if you haven't yet, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Now, verse 19 marks a big turning point in the book of Hebrews. Earlier in the letter, the author has been encouraging the readers, those tempted to go back to their old ways, to give up on Christianity, by addressing the fundamental question of who Jesus is and what he has done. It's an incredibly doctrinal section in Hebrews. The author has been expounding to the audience the utter superiority and sovereignty and supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's what the first 10 chapters have been all about. And the writer of Hebrews compares Jesus with all the features of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant because many of his hearers were Jews. And they were tempted to go back to Judaism. And he demonstrates to them that Christ is the answer. And they can drop everything else. He's saying to them, the grass is not greener on the other side. So hold on because Jesus is better. Hang in there. Hebrews shows that Moses, angels, prophets, Joshua, David, Aaron, and all the priests of the past are none of those things hold a candle to Christ. Christ offers a better sacrifice He is a better priest, and he offers a new and better covenant. So all the way from chapter 1 to 10 is a presentation of the superiority of Jesus. And now in verse 19, there's this shift as he calls his readers to action, to response. You see in verse 19 that therefore, in the very first word there in verse 19. That is referring to everything previously written by the author. The writer thus turns from explanation of the superiority of Jesus and goes into application now for those who are in Christ. Application for the storm-tossed church. He goes from doctrine to duty, from precept to practice. 
And he lays out three responses by the Christian in order to keep on trusting in Jesus. And the first response of those in Christ is that they ought to draw near by faith. Draw near by faith. Look at what it says in verse 22. Let us, that's where all the exhortations are coming, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now, building up to that verse in verse 22 are verses 19 through 21. This is how verses 19 through 21 functions in this paragraph here. It kind of leads up to, it gives the, it serves as the grounds, specifically two grounds by which we can draw near and respond. On what basis do we draw near? So skip back to verses 19 through 21. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Those in Christ are afforded two wonderful advantages to drawing near. The first is this, that you have access to God. You have access. Verse 19 tells us that for a Christian, you have a present possession of confidence because we have complete access to God. If you remember your Old Testament, there was this tabernacle or temple by which Israel would come and meet with God. Now, Israel, the people, were allowed to kind of come into this outer court area in front of the temple, but only the priests were actually able to go past the doors into what is called the holy place. Only the priests of Israel were able to go in there. And beyond that, inside the temple, by a curtain, was a place called the Holy of Holies is even further in. And it was there that God would dwell where his special presence would be made known to the nation of Israel. And no man was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies except the high priest once a year to offer atonement for the sins of the nation of Israel. What's more, no one would even dare to even go into the Holy of Holies because Israel knew that God is a consuming fire. They understood that they were unable to even be in the presence of a holy God because of the sins that they possessed. They knew they would be incinerated before an almighty and perfect righteous God unless they had this fireproof asbestos righteousness, they would be consumed by the wrath of God. But now Hebrews says, you... You who are in Christ, all of you can enter into God's presence because the veil has now, the curtain has now been torn. You can enter in boldly, not through any merit of your own, but because of the blood of Jesus. Every believer may have the utmost confidence to make use of their access to God because your sins have been paid for by the Son of God. God's wrath has been averted because you have turned to Jesus in faith and repentance. No longer are you restricted to the outer court, but you have full rights to enter into the heavenly presence of God himself. As a Christian, not only do you have access, but secondly, verses 21, verse 21 tells us, here's this great advantage that is afforded to you. You have a great high priest over the house of God. 
In other words, Jesus has not only made a way for you by the spilling of his blood and the tearing of his flesh, he is alive as your priest today. And he's the one who never ceases to cover you and be your mediator, guiding, strengthening, encouraging, interceding. Church, you do not just have the benefits of a matchless sacrifice, but you have the benefits of an incomparable priest, the services of an incomparable priest. You know, if you and I, we took a plane out to Washington, D.C., hopped onto an Uber, called an Uber, and told the driver, hey, take me to the White House. Our Uber driver probably would say, no problem. And he'll drive right up, to, right up there, and he'll say, see, there's the White House. Now, that's one thing to point to the White House, White House out to us. It would be a totally different thing if the Uber driver all of a sudden said, well, let me take you in there and introduce you to the President of the United States for a private audience. Jesus Christ not only pointed out the access to God, but he took you and me by the arm and ushered us into his presence, and he sits there with us. This is the incredible access that we have as those in Christ, and so what is our response? Draw near, right? That's the imperative, draw near. That's the command. If you have daily and personal access to the President of the United States who says, you're my friend and I will legislate for you and I, will, I want to welcome you and embrace you, would you not take advantage of it every moment that you could? But you have personal access to God himself, the one who flung the universe into existence, the one who upholds all nations and holds all things together. You've been given the privilege to come before him not only once a year like the high priest, but the whole of life of every day. So let us seize every opportunity to draw near to this access of God, which Christ's priesthood and sacrifice has made possible. Come near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. This is the aim. We do not settle for a Christian life of apathy. We do not settle for a Christian life at distance from God. We are to be near God. We are to be what the Puritans called to have communion with God. What does it mean then to draw near? Drawing near is not a physical act. It is an invisible act of the heart. It's done personally, and it can be done corporately, like right now. We can be drawing near right now. You can do it while standing absolutely still, and you can do it seated with others listening to a sermon. You can do it by singing a hymn of praise. It is, as John Owen said, intentional visits with God, allowing Christ to have our severest thoughts, our assiduous meditations. And I would add it includes, but is not limited to, prayer. You know, these days, it's popular to poo-poo prayer a little bit, right? Slogans insist, thoughts and prayers are useless. We need policy and change. And they're right. The thoughts and prayers of the non-Christian are useless. Throughout Scripture, we find repeated warnings that God does not hear the prayers of the wicked. 
Not that God isn't omniscient and hears all and knows all, but he chooses not to listen to the prayers of the wicked because they will not come to him in faith and pray according to his will. But you, Christian, you have what in verse 22? Your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and your body's washed with pure water, as it says in verse 22. So the sprinkling is a reference, I believe, to the time in Exodus when Moses sprinkles the people with blood at the inauguration of the first covenant at Sinai. And it's saying here that as Christians, you have become participants in the new covenant sprinkled by the blood of Christ. There has been a definitive cleansing through Christ's sacrifice, so you will not be tormented by a guilty conscience. You have open and unhindered access to God, and so, so come before Him and draw near, and draw near in prayer. You know, I, I don't know how many people have told me that I need to contact my senator, and sometimes we don't contact our senators about things. Why? Because we think, well, it's not gonna, it's not gonna, they're not going to listen, and it's, they're impotent to do anything anyways. Not so with God. God is not deaf, and He is not impotent, and He welcomes you. He says, come, come, draw near. Draw near with wholehearted, engaged prayers, all your adoration and all your lament. Draw near with all your thanksgiving and all your pain. Pray that we might see Him and that we might contemplate His greatness. Pray that our faculties be filled with a vision of Christ that we might keep trusting in Jesus because if we do not daily draw near to God, we will drift, we will drift in this world. If you're here this morning and not a Christian, I, I hope you're beginning to understand that this is, the, this is what's central to the gospel. This high and holy and happy and seemingly impossible goal for humanity is that we draw near to Him. And we think that is why Christ came. First Peter 3.18 says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. And this past week, it's been pretty clear that through these or past several weeks, maybe, through these multiple shootings, we've witnessed this past week that both evil and good exist. We instinctively know and feel that there is a kind of rightness and it is a big deal, and perhaps you've grown up in a naturalistic way of viewing the world, that somehow the strong devour the weak, and that's the paradigm of how we got here, but why have you ever asked yourself, why does truth exist? Why is there intrinsic value to truth? Why does morality seem hardwired into our nature? Could it be that it's because God is real? And if we take a close look at ourselves, wouldn't we say that we have fallen short of some standard? That is the heart of the gospel and the good news of Christianity that though we are all sinners, our conscience does accuse us of our wickedness, and God would be perfectly and right to send us into an eternity in hell. Christ, Christ has come into the world to make a way for us to come before God and draw near to, so that the wrath would be averted forever. This is God's will for you, that you draw near to Him, and He will hear that prayer. There is a prayer that God will never deny, that God will always answer, and that is a prayer of your genuine repentance. 
So turn from your living way, from living your own way, and trust in Jesus. So the first response to keep trusting in Jesus, draw near by faith. Second response to keep on trusting in Jesus is to hold fast to hope. Hold fast to hope. To hold unswervingly to the hope we possess. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast to confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, holding fast to hope is not something you do with your hands. This is not done with action. Like drawing near, this too is an affair of the heart. And the exhortation is to be a hope-filled person and hope in God because God has made promises to you and He is faithful. When we look at our lives, sometimes we think that there is not much to hope for. Uh, Sometimes we might find ourselves in broken relationships or we might find ourselves in failing health or various pressures because of school or because of work. Sometimes we feel hopeless because as we look out into the world, it seems like a very hopeless place. Abuse of authority, an intractable problem with guns, a fragile stock market, new evidence of a Uyghur genocide. And sometimes when we let the darkness linger for us long enough, if we are always consuming the news, we feel that we'll never get out from underneath it all. And living faithfully according to Christ, according to His Word, just seems so difficult exhausting. And the preacher of Hebrew says, hold on, come on, hold on. You've come this far, don't forsake it. Your hope has substance. You have, as it says in Hebrews 6, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It is grounded in the life, death, resurrection, and intercession of our Lord Jesus. Yes, storms are coming. Yes, the waves are frightening, but you have an anchor for your soul. This is not some hope without substance. There is an objective hope. And there's this seeming paradox in this verse, isn't it? God says, Christian, hold on. And at the same time, God, the faithful one, the omnipotent one, the sovereign king of the universe says, I will be faithful to you that you will hold on. God promises to never never leave or forsake you. God promises in his word that since he did not spare his own son, he will also also graciously give us all things. God promises to work in you what is pleasing in his sight. He has promised to remember your sins no more. He has promised that you will be perfected for all time by a single sacrifice. He has promised to bring good from all our pain, and our God is a faithful God. He keeps all his promises. How sad it is then that so many come to Christ, say they believe, and they're gone so very soon. Jesus in the parable of the soils described how sometimes the gospel goes out and we fall on a person and it doesn't even register. The gospel means nothing. Others spring up quickly but wither away when hardship and persecution comes. Still others are choked out by the cares of the world. Oh, there are all kinds of people who say they believe. But it isn't real because they do not hold fast. So how do you hold fast? What does it mean to hold fast? Do you curl up in a ball underneath blank, you know, put your blanket over you and say, hold fast, hold fast, hold fast? 
Well, the answer actually comes in our third exhortation. Look at verse 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And the third response to keep trusting in Jesus is to encourage one another to love. We've seen faith, we've seen hope, and now encourage one another to love. Our profession of faith in Christ isn't just a one-time thing. It's a daily reality. Every day we need to battle against the pull of the world that calls us to forsake Jesus and give in to sin. Every day we need to remind ourselves of the truth of Christ's claims and the reality of the hope that He offers to us. So how do we do that? Well, God has given us a lot of things. He's given us His Spirit. He's given us His Word. And Redeemer, the Word of God summons us now and tells us He's given us the church to consciously, carefully consider activities that we would do that we might encourage one another to love. Now, notice verse 24 does not say, consider how to love each other and do good works. That's not what it says, right? It says, even though that's right, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The focus is then on how to help one another become loving people, to aim at what sorts of ways we can think and feel and talk and act that will stir up one another to love and good deeds. So the aim is not just loving and doing good works, but helping to stir up one another. Now that word consider in that verse isn't a suggestion, and rather it means Direct your mind towards it. Reflect upon it. The force of the word is then to direct your mind to look to one another. Think about one another. Focus on one another. Study one another. Let your mind be occupied with one another. And the goal of this focus on others is to think of ways of stimulating them to love and good deeds. When was the last time that you thought about that when you entered into these doors. Where you come to church and you say, how will I encourage her to th today? How will I encourage him that I've never met today? How can I strengthen them? These days we tend to feel like we are self-sufficient people. We think we can get through life socially distant. That I have my group of friends and that's really all I need. I can take care of myself. I got this. But God says here that we need all the gifts that come from the body that is the local church, and our lives are vital for one another. Nobody was intended to live the Christian life in isolation. And so I urge you to hear from God's word this morning. Consider, think about, ponder, deliberate, meditate, mull, and all the other thesaurus words, other people, with this conscious goal. What can I do today? so that they will be stirred up to love and to do good work. Stir them up. Stir them up. Provoke them. This should be our new motto, this hand signal that I'm doing here. Stir them up. Irritate them. Urge them. Press them on. Comfort them. Lend a strengthening hand. 
Notice this mutual care will not be sustained unless we meet together regularly for fellowship, encouragement, and exhortation. Look at verse 25. It says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. It's very simple. Provocation, stirring one another up, will never happen if we keep one another at a distance. I think the author of Hebrews issues a warning to some of us that you will not make it to the finish line unless you meet with your fellow brothers and sisters. Verse 25 says, some made it a habit not to meet, meaning they've abandoned meeting with the local church, whether because of persecution or indifference or apathy. And the following warning about apostasy, beginning in verse 26, and the judgment of God, implies that people who persistently abandon the fellowship of Christian believers are in danger of abandoning God Himself. Beloved, this is not a call merely for you to come and show up on a Sunday. That's bare minimum. That's not what this call is about. Verse 25 is absolutely clear. To come together and encourage one another. The one another implies that there's something mutual going on. Each is doing or saying something encouraging. So sneaking into service and slinking back out without intentional faith-building togetherness means that you will lose your zeal, means that you will drift from God. You will become hardened in the deceitfulness of sin, and if someone doesn't snatch us up, we will make shipwreck of our so-called faith and perish in unbelief. So what are some ways we can be positive irritants on a Sunday? Here are a couple of suggestions for you. Arrive early to church and prepare your hearts to sing and pray and listen with the people of God. I know that seems to be the greatest miracle of all. Getting here on time is difficult enough, but arriving early, that's like the work of God, isn't it? But I believe that the Spirit can supply you with that strength. Sing together as a church. Sing. Your enthusiasm and your gusto in singing the great anthems of the faith is a great way to help and encourage and stir up one another. Stay afterwards and discuss God's Word. Start spiritual conversations. Pray with others and find out their concerns. I pray that this would be a place that it would be sometimes awkwardly silent because people are praying with one another after they've spoken to one another. And come back for Sunday evening fellowship and encourage one another with urgent intentionality. Meet with other saints in the week and put yourself in a position to be sustained and to be strengthened in your faith in Christ. We are supposed to be able to leave this place and live more faithfully than if we haven't been here. Church, the end of verse 25 reminds us that the day is drawing near. The day of judgment is approaching And in these last days, there will come times of difficulty. And it won't be easy to make it to the finish line. And that is why we must be resolved. In our limited days here on earth, we must be resolved to draw near by faith. To hold fast to love. uh, To hold fast to hope. 
and encourage one another to love. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we pray that it would go forth and not return void. We pray that your word would mean a stirring up of our souls by the power of your spirit that we might stir up others. Help us to never come on a Sunday and leave unchanged and to have those slow and steady regular meetings with your people that we might be stirred up to love and good deeds and that we may be active in stirring others up to love and good works. Oh Lord, may that be, may our church exemplify that in our daily living and also when we gather together. Help us to draw near. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.